0: Welcome to this latest update on the COP26 meetings in Glasgow with me, Ian Welsh. Over the weekend, a lot of the focus in Glasgow has been on the rallies backing bolder action on climate. Over 100,000 people were reported to have been on the streets in Glasgow on Saturday, the largest rally in the city for 20 years. In terms of progress at COP itself, the first week certainly saw a blitter of announcements of new initiatives. The agreements and pledges on forests, methane and coal were calculated by the International Energy Agency and others to have shifted the needle sufficiently for projected temperature rises to be limited to 1.8 Celsius compared to 2.7 Celsius before the COP26 meetings began. There have been a few raised eyebrows at how realistic this is. Certainly there's a consensus that week two will be where a lot of the hard work negotiating and what delivery will look like will take place. A number of climate scientists have argued that none of the countries that have net zero targets have sufficient short-term policies now to get onto a net zero trajectory. Their concern is that we are still at the vision stage, which is not yet matched by action. So there is a lot still to be done. This week we'll see government ministers from around the world engage on the hard negotiating points and help the officials that remain in Glasgow. Among the sticking points are how the carbon markets are going to work, the need for more transparent reporting and timeframes for emissions reduction plans. While there seems to have been real progress on the global north committing to provide climate finance for developing economies, points of contention remain around how much of that cash can or should be used for adapting to higher temperatures and how much should be focused on cutting emissions. One problem is that it is easier to get investment into, say, a renewable energy scheme that has potential economic return compared to adaptive measures that don't. So there's a lot of horse trading to come, but the sense of optimism remains. Let's see how things unfold. A significant announcement on Friday came from the Consumer Goods Forum's Forest Positive Coalition of Action, featuring Mars, Unilever, Tesco and Nestle, among a group of big corporate members all dependent on forest-related key commodities. The group was launched at the New York Climate Week in 2020, with the goal of reaching net positive forest impacts by 2030. Announced in Glasgow was the coalition's strategy plan for the next few years. The companies are working to establish baselines so they can determine what net positive looks like. In addition, 20 forest schemes have been selected that coalition members will support for the next couple of years as a learning phase. The plan is that several of the schemes will then be scaled up significantly. I've been attending the Global Landscapes Forum at the University of Glasgow for the past few days. There have been some fascinating sessions and interventions from participants in Glasgow and from around the world attending virtually. On Friday, I attended a session showcasing the importance of nature-based solutions, preserving biodiversity while helping Indigenous communities realise the value of their landscape. The session focused on a new initiative, in Oro Province in Papua New Guinea, supported by the national and local governments and forest experts at cifor ICRAF. Following the session, I was delighted to talk with the Honorable Gary Dufa, Governor of Oro Province, and Tony Simons, Executive Director of cifor ICRAF, the body formed by the merger of the Centre for International Forestry Research and the World Agroforestry Centre.
1: So this is a session talking about a new project that you're launching in Papua New Guinea, Tony, why don't you give us a little bit of a background to your organization and then tell us a bit about the project and who's involved.
2: C4ICRAF is a merger of two international organizations. One previously focused on forest and natural forest protection and landscape approaches with forest landscapes. And the other, ICRAF, World Agroforestry Centre, focused more on trees and agricultural land, tree commodities, and again, linking up to natural forest areas. Together, we are the world's largest research-based organization around forest landscape issues. In addition to that, we are the host of the Global Landscape Forum, the world's largest platform for integrated landscape approaches. So together, C4 and EGRAF are focusing on two-thirds of the world's land area. We mainly address ourselves to the tropics, areas in the tropics. We work in 40 countries directly and interact with 90 countries overall throughout the tropics. Our job as an international organization is to support national institutions, national governments, and producer organizations around issues to do with forest, tree-based commodities, etc. We have two headquarters, one in Bogor and one in Nairobi, and so we have 800 staff And we have an annual budget of about $100 million a year to spend on research, development, building up evidence. In our warehouse of knowledge, in our warehouse of information, analyses, data, technical, social and policy solutions, we have $2 billion of prior investment in knowledge. We are the Amazon warehouse of forest, agroforestry, land use, tree commodity information. And what we seek to do is to turn those knowledge products into knowledge services, demands that countries, corporates, and others want. And it's been an absolute delight to partner with Papua New Guinea on a new venture. It's not a project, it's a program. It's a collection of projects that together join up to have six major thrusts around policy, forestry remuneration, building community and producer networks, valuing true resources in those landscapes, fostering a a landscape steward approach and bringing digital agriculture to these landscapes so that we're using tools and information and not only scientifically and remotely driven through satellites, but collected by people themselves so that they're the ones, if they're not trusted, you've collected all of this data at the community level, this self-assuring, self-monitoring, but if people don't believe you, we can back them up. It's not that we're the first point of information, we're triangulating and supporting what's happening on the
1: ground. Gary, why don't you tell us a little bit about the project from your perspective? You're the governor of Oro Province in Papua-Tugini. Guinea. is the program setting out to do?
3: Well, the program
1: sets out to look at how
3: we can basically have our people who have been taking care of these forests. And you know, at one time you could say this these are their forests. However, I would like to look at it as these are assets of the world. You know, these people are playing a very important role or responsibility in taking care of these resources of the world. Now, with the world being a global village, interconnected and interconnected and facing challenges together, such as global warming, climate change, how can we look at this particular situation whereby this is an opportunity to mitigate that and these are the people involved? The people from this particular forested area are going to be an example that we can replicate in the province and then throughout the country. And we're looking for partners that can assist us in achieving those objectives. Obviously, I'm not a scientist. Obviously, I'm not an expert on sustainable land use, et cetera, et cetera. But I do know people who are, and I've connected with them. C4 Craft are those people. They're the organizations that we feel very comfortable and satisfied that they can help us, take us on this journey to where we want to go. We want to be able to end up somewhere where our people can live with dignity. They can generate income from their land. They can protect their forests on behalf of the world. This can be an example, not just our province or our country, but the rest of the world. And
1: we're so glad to invite organizations such as c 4 to come and help us achieve this. We're looking at here, you're, you're trying to realize the assets of the forests without destroying the forests, essentially. We've got a 150 million euro program in mind. How's that gonna work, Tony? What's the funding looking like now? And what's the funding look like throughout the program's life? So Ian, amazingly,
2: the national government and the provincial government have realized that they need to have skin in the game right from the very beginning. They've laid the foundational funding to get this off the ground, to build the facilities, to buy the vehicles, to put it in place, to convince others that this is uh, an investment that really matters to them. It's a priority for them. It's not a transient thing. It's not a handout. The funding that is needed to support this is also running at the same time a market, a market for environmental services, biodiversity, forest, carbon water regulation social credits because then it can show that we don't want to price carbon at 5 or 10 dollars a ton of CO2 we don't want to equate the value of a forest to the carbon that it contains but rather to work at a shadow price of 50 60 80 dollars a ton to demonstrate to the communities that they can be stewards
1: and remunerated stewards to protect that. So essentially there's the government of Papua New Guinea, and we heard from the prime minister earlier, and the governor of Oro province, Gary Dufo, have agreed to put the initial funding in to get the project off the ground. So then you're looking now to develop and move the funding into other sources. So where are you looking? Is it the private sector, the carbon markets? Where are you looking for? Where are you going to get the funding from for the project? The concepts
2: and techniques that we're building are not mainstream. A lot of the activities and benefits don't have markets associated with them. We're looking to create those markets. So it does need to be a combination of public sector financing and private sector. Private sector are looking to de-risk their investments. And if there is substantial investment from the national government, from other public sector donors... They will see that they may not need a first loss guarantee from their investment but they do want to see others having a stake in the game and their ability to influence the outcomes from it. The people with the greatest investment in this are the communities. We need to convince them that they're going to be investing their land and their labor and their capital in a sound idea. One that they've helped co-create, one that they're in charge of when we start to learn from this project to other things. a key part of this is that village-driven element to it. Private sector are interested in it, both from a corporate point of view, the off-takers of agricultural products, of goods and services from these, because of the quality. We're talking about a country with only 0.1% of the world's population, 0.3% of the world's land, but a staggering, a staggering 7% of the world's biodiversity. And that appeal of the most linguistically diverse the most rurally based, the highest percentage of land owned by communities in the world. That is the brand. That is the concept of Manigalat, supporting biodiversity, supporting forest protection, supporting building that social and human capital in those rural communities so they don't end up in urban slums, so they don't end up with lack of options and enterprise for their children going forward. This is a truly intergenerational enterprise.
1: Governor, let me turn to you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the links between communities and forests. Why is it that viable, vibrant communities are essential if they're going to be custodians of the forests and biodiversity? Why is that so important? Well, it's important because they are the forest. You know, They're part of that forest. They take care of that forest
3: as the most intelligent creature in that forest. They understand that responsibility and they're connected to that forest. You know, And here's an example for the rest of the world. Much around the world has become disconnected from nature and I think a lot of the problems we are facing in the world is because we have become so disconnected from nature. These people demonstrate exactly how connected they are to nature and they are an example for the rest of us. People need to be connected. That's an example of what you can see right there in Managlas. They live in harmony with their forest, and they've been doing that for thousands of years. What we need to do is see that as an example and see how we can replicate that, of course there are issues in regards to if we've got development taking place, we've got needs, we've got desires, materialism, globalization, etc. But I feel that the solutions are there. If we can see what's happening there
1: but help them, we can find the solutions. And this all requires valuing of the forests. Tony, what are the mechanisms that you think are going to work in this project for valuing the forest? There are three concepts there
2: in. There's price, there's cost, and there's value. Too often, we've only done partial counting. We've hidden the real cost of using our natural environment, exploiting it. It hasn't been a value creation enterprise in the way we manage land. It's a value extraction. And that is not infinite. That is not inexhaustible. And we're seeing the degradation of that land, degradation of people's livelihoods associated with it. Principally, we're looking to rebalance that disconnect between price, cost, and value to make something remunerative for the community, for them to understand the benefits of it, the long-term nature. This is a five, 10, 20-year journey wrong. There's no get-rich-quick scheme. There's no guarantee at the end of it.
3: We will learn
2: throughout the process. We will use very stringent environmental, social, and governance safeguards to protect those people, protect those livelihoods, make sure that we're not doing unintended harm as we go about the delivery of this particular program. So let's take carbon as a concept. It is the world's most variable commodity. At the low end, you have firewood at $50 a tonne. At the high end, you have diamond at $100 billion a tonne. It is the same commodity, it is carbon. Now we were unhappy with that extensive range. So we created a lower end called atmospheric carbon where we would sell it for two or five or $10 a tonne which is absolute nonsense because valuing that forest only for its carbon value is completely irregular and so undervaluing the asset, the resource. So here we have to make sure that the forest protection, the carbon sequestration, the carbon storage, the water regulation, the ecosystem functioning that comes out of that intact habitat, the provisioning that it gives to the agricultural lands associated with it. And now the marketing, the branding, the association by being involved with Manigalas Plateau is the real win because it is recognized as this quality, quality, quality product. Carbon is completely ungraded. There's a little differential between whether it's a removal from the atmosphere or whether it's avoided deforestation and whether it's double certified or not. But there's not three, four, five grades of quality carbon where top quality carbon is something that reinforces social communities, where it reinforces the biodiversity value of the landscape, where it enhances water regulation and water cycling amongst it, where it provides that framework for all of the productive elements in agricultural landscapes to move ahead. That's quality carbon. That should get the premium. That should get the highest price, at least three digits, you know, above $100 a tonne, not at 2 5 and $10 a tonne. And the low quality carbon, the extracting out of the air and burying deep in the sea through a mechanical process, should be at the low end of that process. And technology is not there to do that yet. But let's not put all carbon in the world in the same basket, because if you had to buy carbon, you would want
1: to know whether it was firewood or diamond. Absolutely. Governor, for you, what will success look like for this program? What are you wanting to see as this program progresses over the time period that Tony mentioned, like in 5, 10, 20 years? Well, we'd like to see a thriving community that are
3: able to generate an income from the use of their land in a sustainable manner. The same community continue to protect this forest on behalf of all of us, and they're adequately remunerated or compensated for it by all of us who are stakeholders Mm -hmm. around the world. And I'd like to see that being replicated around the country and perhaps an example for other similar programs around the world. But the people are going to be able to generate, sustain their livelihoods and at the same time continue in their responsibilities to the world as custodians of these forests. That's what I'd like to see.
1: You said something earlier, which I thought was very powerful. You mentioned that we're all indigenous communities because we're all indigenous to the world. Is that something that you're seeing in your province, that the communities there, they recognize that they have this responsibility now for these forests, for everybody? Well, to be honest, over the
3: years, they've been, I would say, miseducated or diseducated to believe that a better life is to get an education, to get out and acquire material wealth, and that is supposedly civilization. So they have been convinced to move down that pathway, when in fact, they have a better life already. They have their own land in an area where there is abundant food, shelter, protection that they need. But how can they be able to continue living that life and also be able to generate income revenue for themselves so that they can feel part of this world? Tony,
1: finally for you, what will success look like for you from the program?
3: Success for me would look like being
2: able to demonstrate to the communities, to the country and to the world that we can manage landscapes in a more integrated and prosperous and scientifically informed way. We've done a very poor job of stewarding our landscape as it is at the moment. If somebody came from out of space and we were trying to market planet Earth for sale, what would we market it as? It's degraded. We have a huge amount of area where the land has been exhausted. It's under enormous threat. We have social disconnect. We've got to clean up our act. Historically, this week, 415 years ago, there was a failure, a massive failure, where people tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And that Guy Fawkes event on the 5th of November in 1606 was a failure. And today we celebrate that failure as a public occasion. We don't want to celebrate failure. We want to show that we can explode the myth that forests can be sold as carbon, that forest only needs to be taken account of avoided deforestation, but rather that in harmony with other elements and land uses in that landscape, it can be remunerative, it can be well designed, it can be proper. And that including forest protection as a viable alternative as a land use, is incredible because the co-benefits of it. And in a time when we now realize that 70% of all zoonoses, that is where a disease passes from animals to humans, are associated with forest and forest destruction. That is a powerful message for us today in this time of COVID-19.
1: Perhaps we can use that as the way to move forward and to push forward momentum on the landscape type approaches that uh, you have been discussing today. But for now, the Honourable Gary Dufa, Governor of Oro Province in Papua New Guinea, and Tony Simmons, Executive Director of C4 ICRAF, and from the Glass University Fireworks display, thanks very much.
0: I was back at the Global Landscapes Forum hosted at the University of Glasgow on Sunday for a session launching the People's Forest Partnership, which aims to fix a fundamental flaw in carbon financing by directing significant private funding to forest communities to reward their efforts to successfully stop deforestation. The People's Forest Partnership aims to mobilise at least $20 billion per year in long-term private sector investments as well as public funding and channel it directly to forest community projects by 2030. This could reduce CO2 emissions from deforestation each year by at least 2 billion tonnes, Protect at least 500 million hectares of threatened tropical forest and their biodiversity, and support livelihoods and bioeconomy development for over 50 million people in forest communities. Lofty ambition for sure, but it's another example of this is what it's going to look like in terms of the long term future that will realistically cut deforestation rates effectively. Today, Monday, the focus at COP HQ is on adaptation to a changing climate, a thorny issue for sure. And tomorrow, Tuesday, we'll look at how women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. There will also be a clean energy innovation event looking at clean energy solutions from around the world. I'll be back on Wednesday reflecting on all of that and the news and reviews from Glasgow. Until then, I've been Ian Welsh and goodbye.